The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hey, it's Jesse. It's Labor Day here in the U.S., and we here at Hello Monday are all wondering where the summer went already. It was so quick. You know, the fall, kind of like the beginning of the year, it's that point where we get to stop, think about a clean slate, and think about how we want things to be different. So we're bringing you a really important episode from the archives today. It's our episode on the 10-year plan with Debbie Millman. Enjoy. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. It's our show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. I want you to imagine something. In fact, if it's easy, grab a pen and paper and write it down. It's winter 2031, 10 years from now. What does your life look like? Be very specific here. Who do you live with? What is your job? What does it feel like? What shoes are you wearing? Now keep this, because we're going to come back to it. This 10-year plan, it's an exercise I talked about with today's guest, Debbie Millman. Debbie is living proof that articulating your dreams and planning for them can lead to great things. During her 20 years as president of Sterling Brands, she worked on logos you'd recognize, like Burger King and 7-Up. She's written six books, and she helped found the world's first master's in branding program, Her artwork has been shown around the world. And for more than 15 years now, Debbie has hosted one of my very favorite podcasts, Design Matters. She interviews other people about how they navigate creative and powerful careers. So I wanted to talk to her about her own. I started by asking her if she could distill a formula for that success. I've been trying to see patterns and common denominators and so forth. And while I'd really love to be able to outline a sort of perfect scenario for creativity, there really isn't one. And what I've discovered is that I've interviewed, at last count, 437 people over the last 15 years. And there's only two that I can say unequivocally were really confident and secure in their own work. And that was the late, great Massimo Vignelli and Milton Glaser, late, great Milton Glaser as well. And I interviewed them both when they were in their 80s. And I think that has a lot to do with their sense of self and comfort in their own skin. They just didn't have any more Fs to give. And they were really so confident with their work that essentially when they were working with clients, they would show one possible solution to a design problem because they were essentially seeing themselves as doctors. And in the way that you'd go to a doctor for a diagnosis, they felt like, well, you're going to a designer for a solution and this is what we're recommending. I define confidence now as the successful repetition of any endeavor. And they had so successfully repeated their endeavors that they came to recognize what it meant to be successful or what it took to be successful and could show up with those tools. 
I think that that sense of longing, the sense of searching, the sense of worrying about whether or not you could do it again, if you're going to be able to keep that level of success, if you've succeeded later in life, if you'll be able to replicate those conditions, all of those things are just part of what it means to be an artist and a creator, a maker of any of anything. So that that's the the biggest thing I've learned. And then the other thing is that there is no shortcut that you do have to show up every single day and do it every single day. And and that's the way to greatness. I want to go back to confidence. Okay. Um, one of my favorite of your Design Matters episodes uh, was a recent interview with Lisa Congdon. You've done more than one, but it's a recent yes. one. In her interview with you, you also talked about that confidence. And it appears actually... From the outside, it appears to me like Lisa is a person who has increasingly found her confidence. The takeaway from that conversation, Debbie, was that I needed to stop trying so hard for it and just do the thing, just do the thing over and over and over again and not worry about how confident I felt. Yeah. So that idea around confidence, that you that you shouldn't worry about it, you should just do the thing you have to do over and over and over again. Is that what you're recommending? Well, I think that this goes back to, once again, Seth Godin's book, The Practice, which really suggests looking at your work as a practice to do every day and thinking about what makes you feel alive as opposed to what is going to get the most likes or clicks or feedback. I do think that the work itself is hard to evaluate without feedback. And I think as a culture now, we expect and anticipate that feedback in everything fairly instantly. And so that feedback, while it gives us that sense of happiness in the moment, it's a a hit of dopamine, it's really ultimately, I think, thwarting real breakthroughs because we then really kowtow to that feedback. So I think going back to the whole notion of confidence, and this is something I really learned from from Danny Shapiro, the writer. She had come to do an episode with me at my studio at the School of Visual Arts. And after the interview, she saw a stack of books about confidence on my desk in my office. At that time in my life, I was thinking that confidence was the holy grail. <laughs> and so there were a whole slew of books that had come out and she saw the books and she said, oh, I think that confidence is really overrated. And as somebody that was seeking confidence as if it were the Holy Grail, I was sort of taken aback and shocked. And when I asked her to elaborate, she stated that she felt that ultimately confidence was something that only came after courage, that it was much more important to have courage to take that first step into the unknown Mm -hmm. than to be able to just manifest confidence through some sort of motivational inner language. I do feel that that's true, that that courage to take a step into the unknown is is really the birthplace of creativity. You know, I hear from a lot of listeners who they have a day job and it's a day job that pays the bills and it's fine. But they also have a more creative aspiration and they've kind of created a a mental picture, as it were, in which those two things have to be separate. And they see the limits 
they see the limits of their own abilities and capabilities. And, and this goes to the courage piece. Um, I thought a lot about, in your interview with Tim Ferriss, toward the end of the interview, you talked about Milton Glaser and an exercise that he had done with you and that you subsequently do with your students. Do you know what exercise I'm talking about? The 10-year plan. The 10-year plan. I feel like our listeners need the 10-year plan. So I wonder <laughs> if, you can, if you can describe it. Well, the 10-year plan is an exercise that I've borrowed from Milton Glaser. And it was something that I actually undertook back in 2005. And in 2005, I took a summer intensive with Milton Glaser at the School of Visual Arts. And it was really catered to mid-level professionals, people that were that, that were seasoned, um, but not so seasoned that they, they didn't need to be taught anything anymore. And um, I took it and it really changed my life. One of the exercises was to envision and write out how you could imagine your life to be five years into the future if you were doing exactly what you wanted to be doing, like every single thing from morning to night, you were instructed to write out every detail to make it as detailed as possible. He really urged us to put our whole hearts and souls into it, which I did. And we had to share them at the end of the of the intensive. And it was a moment of really declaring what you wanted your life to be in the future. Not only did I make write an essay, which I put my whole heart and soul into, I also then made a list. I, like I wanted it to be super clear. <laughs> These are the things that I want my life to be about in five years to in 2010. And so they were big, audacious goals, things that yeah. I didn't really think were possible, but wanted with my whole heart. And lo and behold, over the years, year one, year two, year three, year four, year five, things really started to manifest. They really started to manifest in momentum about seven years later. And then even most recently, now it's 15 years later, one of the, one of the last remaining items on the list um, manifested. And so I decided, and, and Milton allowed me to do this when he stopped teaching, to incorporate this into my curriculum. But because my students were younger than the average age of Milton's classes, students in his classes, um, I decided to make it a 10-year plan also because I had lived through this process. I do think that it takes time. I think anything worthwhile takes time and that given that it's now taken me 15 years to manifest all of them, that I want to give students a little bit more runway. And I am always astounded, like Milton, when I get emails from my students or I see them and they tell me things that have manifested in their lives. So I think there's something about envisioning and declaring what you want that is indeed very, very powerful. I mean, I do think it's a little bit of magic too, but I do think it's mostly about articulating and declaring what you feel you're worthy of being able to achieve. I love this, Debbie. And and I will confess, I have done this exercise. I, oh, I did good. this exercise with a career coach about, about five years ago, actually. And, and there's a reason why I asked you to describe this in connection with courage. Because first of all, I think that the real courage to do Anything that we might want to do is to take that first step to envision it. 
And at least when I did the exercise, I don't know if it was like this for you or for your students. My first pass was kind of bland. It was it was moderated by what I thought that I could probably do. So you know what I want to do? I want to mm. write a book. Well, yeah. I'm going to dial that back. I want I want to write an article. Like maybe <laughs> right. I want to write an article, right? Yeah. And and it took a lot of pushing and a lot of discomfort to get to the point where I put aside everything I thought that I was capable of, listened to my internal compass and just wrote down every single thing that I wanted, even if I didn't think that it existed right away. Right. And then that second part happened, which you called magic. I'm going to call it magic too. And maybe it's magic that we ourselves create. But when you actually get it all down on paper, it kind of happens. Yeah. I don't exactly know how it happens. It seems to happen for a lot of people. I I put so much energy into the first go-round that I didn't need to rewrite it, but I allow my students to rewrite it if they feel once they've heard others that they haven't really reached for everything that they wanted to rewrite it. And I would say a good number actually end up doing that. I ended up redoing the exercise in 2017, I rewrote the essay to address the current times in the next stage of my life. I had decided that I wanted to do it in 2017. And literally I did it on December 31st, 2017. Like I wouldn't make any New Year's Eve plans that year because I had had this goal, I hadn't achieved it, and I needed to sit down and get it done. And I did. And I also put some very audacious goals in that and a few of them have manifested. So yeah, it's there's something really wonderful about it. When when I did the episode with Tim, one of his listeners went and transcribed the way I described the instructions and created a website called your10yearplan.com and and it's there for anybody that wants to follow the instructions. That's pretty rad. <laughs> I know I was so I was so <laughs> really excited cool. about it. I'm like, "Wow, look what somebody did." And we're going to take a quick break. When we're back, Debbie will explain how she learned to say no to the things that didn't really fit her vision. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, 
Listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back. Before we pick up, a reminder. If you haven't filled out our listener survey, please do. It's easy to find at linkedin.com forward slash hello Monday. That's linkedin.com forward slash hello Monday. It'll take five minutes. And now my guest today is Debbie Millman. It took many years of tripping forward for Debbie to find her footing in her career. The first decade of my career was what I commonly refer to now as a decade of, of rejection and failure. And I was rejected from grad school. I was rejected from an independent study program I wanted to take at the Whitney Museum. I mean, there were so many things that I was rejected for that first decade and just a lot of failure and a lot of missteps and just sort of bad decisions. And I really didn't start to achieve what would be deemed as sort of corporate success until my 30s. I was in my mid-30s. When I started in branding, it did seem as if I had a natural talent for it um, and, and did very well with business development and sort of classic rainmaking. And then when I went to Sterling in 1995, at that point I was about 34, 33, 34 years old, my career really blossomed. And it blossomed for a number of reasons. One was I did have some intrinsic talent for branding, and it might have been because of the years working in my dad's pharmacy and just really watching consumers buy things over and over and over. He had sort of a general store slash pharmacy that I worked in every summer. Um, But it also might have been because my boss, the current CEO at the time, really trusted me. And it was the first time in my life that somebody that I reported to truly trusted my vision And so that combination of factors really led to success that I had never, ever had in my life before. And because I had never had it in my life before, I essentially gave up everything else in my life for the next decade to really commit myself to having more and more and more of it. I was like a successaholic. (laughs) And I would say eight years into that journey, I started to feel as if my creative soul was was dying, like the person that was drawing and painting and writing bad poetry and all of that had, had all but died. And so I started to pick a lot of that up. And that's when in 2005, I started Design Matters, which was kind of a Hail Mary with my creativity because it felt like it was something I could sneak under the radar. It could be something creative that I was doing, but also maybe if I was interviewing clients, it could be considered something that was supporting the business. And in fact, it did. And I did that for another number of years. In 2008, we sold Sterling to Omnicom. Um, There were three main partners. I was the second largest shareholder of the company, and we sold the company. And we had initially thought we'd have a three-year earnout. At the time, I was also offered an opportunity to start the Master's in Branding program at the School of Visual Arts with Steve Heller, which I I did. So I had a full-time day job and a full-time night job. And it ended up being a five-year earnout, And so we finished our, our legal obligations in 2013. But we were doing so well. And I was, I was just so, we were so, so much more successful than I'd ever, ever imagined being. And, and I was scared. I was scared that if I left, I wouldn't be able to pay for the kinds of things that I wanted. And I, I wouldn't have the same identity anymore. 
And so while through the entire five-year earnout, I had been talking about next steps and what else I wanted to do besides SVA and leaving Sterling and starting this new life, it actually took me five years because I was so scared to leave behind the power that I had amassed and the paycheck that I was getting and any number of things that I think anybody would be able to understand. But it got to a point where the people closest to me, like my brother, was like, you're never leaving. Why are you kidding yourself? You know, you talk about this, but it's, you know, it's been years and we hear the same story every time, as only a sibling can tell you. <laughs> and and, and he was right. You know, he was right. And just when I was really, really beginning to think about making the move, just when I was ready to do that, Simon Williams, the current CEO of Sterling, decided that it was time for him to become chairman and the company would need a new CEO. Hmm. And I was the person he went to. And I was really, really honored and flattered and touched and overwhelmed and in awe and really considered it and went through the entire process of interviewing with all the muckety-mucks at Omnicom and making sure that I got the actual offer before I figured out that I was going to do it or not do it. And then when I was sort of formally offered the job, I thought about it and I asked for a month to think about it. And then um, one of my colleagues, my other, the third partner at Sterling, who knew I was really struggling, came to me and said, why don't we co-CEO? And then I thought about that. And one month turned into four months. And finally, Simon Williams came to me and he said, Debbie, anything that takes you four months to decide means you don't want to do it. Such good advice. (laughs) And I turned it down. And it was the hardest decision that I, one of the hardest decisions I've ever made, but also one of the best. And a year later, I left. That fear that you're talking about, it's so pervasive when something is working and the status quo is working and to have something greater or better, more fulfilling, whatever it is, you need to turn away from the thing you have. That's that is a turning point and a tough decision, I think, for a lot of people. Yeah, and it goes back to that step into the unknown. And this is also one of the great benefits of Milton's exercise. We tend to think about what we know we can imagine, <laughs> what we know we know. And it's very, very hard to imagine more. It's much easier, and I don't know why, for us to imagine having less. And we don't think of possibilities coming in. We only think of opportunities going away. And I was really worried that without having that security, that I'd have nothing to replace it with, never considering that any number of things could manifest that I'd had that I'd had no idea about at that time. So I had zero faith in in anything that could happen and and zero imagination about what I might be able to do on my own. There was just a fear that I wouldn't be as much as I was. And and that that was a real lesson for me to learn, mostly that I could really rely on myself, which is something that I had never really put to any test before. Yeah. 
So we're talking about a period that's in the past. Where's the challenge for you now? Where's, where's the opportunity for growth ahead? What are you excited for? Where you're challenging yourself? Well, Jesse, this is such an interesting question. I am going to be 60 in 2021. And so I've become much more aware of time and the sort of notion of if not now, when. Sort of like what my brother was asking me, but on a much bigger level. And especially now in in these sort of pandemic times, what do I want to commit my time to? What do I want to really do? Because I've always been a people pleaser and have done almost anything I could to avoid somebody being angry with me or disappointed in me or upset with me. I say yes. I've said yes to many, many things that I probably shouldn't have, including books. And it's a lot harder to say no than it is to say yes, even if you have too much to do. And, or for me it is. And so I've had to learn to say no. And, and I, I, I have this fear for the same reason, you know, I was afraid to leave Sterling. I still haven't fully gotten this yet. You know, if I say no, I might never get another opportunity again. It's like, girl, come on. But it's so <laughs> pervasive that I still worry like, oh, if I turn this down, you know, this might be the last chance. And yeah. that is something I'm working on with my therapist. <laughs> Um, but it is something that I contend with. And so, but that's, that for me is the big question now. What do I want to spend this next chapter of my life committed to? I've just submitted a manuscript to my, to my editor at, at HarperCollins for an anthology of design matters, which will be out in the fall of 2021 to coincide with my 60th birthday, which is going to be fun. Awesome. But I'm now in a position where I'm very, very, very fortunate where it's kind of up to me to decide what I want to commit to. And so I'm spending a a good amount of time thinking about that. What do I need to do in my life to ensure that when I die, I don't regret not having done something that I was too afraid to do? Do you feel like you know something now? Like you finally solved the puzzle and now that you have the solve... You, you look back over the decades where you were working on the puzzle and wish that you had done something differently? I wish I had worried less. I remember after leaving the first company that I created with my partner back in the early 90s, I left. And I remember thinking at that time that I was probably unemployable. <laughs> I really, really felt this, Jesse. I really felt this. I thought... Okay, I'm 32, 31, 32, and I am a husband, and I'm never going to get another job again. Like, I really thought that. And my career had barely started. <laughs> so I, I've spent a, a good amount of time worrying about not being good enough and that fear keeping me back from trying things because I was so afraid of rejection and failure. But hey, I was rejected and failed anyway. And so sort of like a Greek tragedy, I go out of my way to avoid the very thing that I have to face. And and it's taken a long time to learn that. And I'm still struggling through that. How much do I keep myself back 
from doing things as opposed to lack of opportunities? And and how do I clear away the vestiges of that repetitive pattern behavior? Before we wrapped our conversation, I asked Debbie to share her philosophy on personal branding. It's an original take. I just have a real issue with the whole notion of a person being a brand. And I primarily feel this way because I define a brand as manufactured meaning. You know, brands, Coke, Pepsi, Burger King, Tropicana, they don't they don't grow on trees. You know, oranges might, but the branded juice does not. And they are created by people for people, but they're all constructs. We create a name and a mark and we associate it with a thing. And then through that recognition and repetition, we come to associate this thing, meaning that thing. So it's manufactured. It's all created with very deliberate differentiation. And design is the expression of that differentiation, of that meaning. Humans are alive. Humans breathe. We have a soul. We have a real soul. And that soul, that living, breathing soul, is something very unique to people. I think rather than work on building a personal brand, we should work on developing our character which then is assessed via our reputation. And so I think we should seek to be better people with better character, stronger reputations because of that character and what we stand for and how we show up in the world, as opposed to developing some sort of manufactured meaning that's reflected through some front-facing position in the world that is only really a fraction of who we are in our totality. People feel that in order to be their best professional selves, they have to sell their set of skills. They have to sell their expertise. And this is true. But I think it's so important, even as you do that, even as you package it and share it with whatever audience you're trying to share it with, that you find a way to connect to the fact that you are larger than that and you can grow beyond that. Absolutely. And I think who you are and how, how you think is as important as your portfolio or your mission statement or your um, corporate successes. That was Debbie Millman. Make sure to check out Design Matters wherever you get your podcasts. Debbie's book, Why Design Matters, is due out from HarperCollins in the fall. During our conversation, we talked about the 10-year plan. It even has its own website with dead simple instructions, your10yearplan.com. So here's the challenge for you. That exercise we started at the top of the show, I want you to spend a little time on it this week. Our producer, Sarah Storm, and I, we're going to do it too. Remember, think big. Bring a sentence or two to our next office hours, and we'll share them. We'll inspire each other. As usual, for office hours, we will convene Wednesday afternoon at 3 p.m. Eastern. Want the link? Follow me on LinkedIn at Jesse Hempel or email us at hellomonday at linkedin.com. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show is produced by Sarah Storm. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Iriando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is our technical director. Michaela Greer and Victoria Taylor help us build our character. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. You also heard music from Poddington Bear. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. See you next Monday. Thanks for listening.
I'm really looking forward to seeing people again in person. I'm looking forward to going to a Broadway show. I'm looking forward to being able to make use of my subscription to uh, the Metropolitan Opera. Mm. I am looking forward to dinner parties. I'm looking forward to being able to hug people. I really miss that connection with with humans. I really look forward to doing Design Matters back in my studio again and not through Zoom. Yeah, um, yeah I look forward to having to being able to throw away my hand sanitizer <laughs> well, <to come laughs> and full, my masks. Full circle, you know, <laughs> yeah. our studio, which I've not been in since March, is in the Empire State Building. Oh. which is your original stomping ground for Design yeah, Matters. the Castle now. of New York. That's where I started Design Matters. Yeah.